Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. Just some housekeeping stuff that we do at the beginning, at the opening of every show. If you need to get a hold of me, my email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. I have been chastised for not giving my email out at the beginning of the show. And sometimes people have to wait all the way to the end to get my contact information. But that email is probably the best way to get a hold of me. The Facebook and other social media stuff takes me a while to get to these days. There's a lot of interaction on those platforms. But if you need a direct response pretty quickly, it's barry at bostonconfidential.net. I just wanted to ask you guys, if you have liked the show, if you like the show, please send us a review. You can review us on Apple. That's probably the best spot to give us a review. Gives us more juice for whatever reason. But I do really appreciate the reviews that are coming in. But if you haven't to date, give us a review on Apple if you can. I'd really appreciate it. And we're going to have some interesting stuff going forward. And I'm happy that the weather is warmer. And I got some things planned, but I don't want to mention them yet. Also, guys, it seems like we've really gotten a jump in listenership since that article in the Boston Globe. And I'm really thankful for that. So all's well here at Boston Confidential in the spring of 2022. I hope everything's okay with you as well. I've gotten a lot of emails on this series we're doing right now on the FBI corruption in Boston. And a lot of people simply can't believe that this is true. And it is true. And we've lived it here in Boston. And those books I gave you last week, they're really a primer on corruption and the underworld in Boston. There was a couple by Howie Carr, who's a local radio legend and author in the area and he is probably the most knowledgeable person i've ever seen about the mob the fbi in boston so read those books i really like brothers bulger by howie carr and i also recommend any book by michelle mcphee but her book on the boston marathon bombing that book is entitled mayhem Unanswered questions about the Zanayev brothers, the U.S. government, and the Boston Marathon bombing. I think that book will highlight the fact that the Boston FBI and the National FBI have learned nothing, absolutely nothing, from the Whitey Bulger saga. Because that same level of, I don't want to call it corruption, right? H. Paul Rico, John Conley, and John Morris... They were corrupt men. They were taking money from the mob. I don't think it always goes that way, but the protection of these murderous informants has to be reviewed. 
and it continues today. It continued up until the Boston Marathon bombing with the older Zarnayev. It comes out in Michelle's book that he was an informant for the FBI. And his logic during that time frame, Zarnayev's logic during that time frame was, okay, you're going to make me an American citizen. And the bargain was he'd go to Russia, I believe the Chechnya region, and point out and finger people who were involved in terrorism. And then the FBI would make him a citizen. There was just a delay in his citizenship. I think they were going to give it to him, right? And this guy's a lunatic. He was involved in that horrific Waltham slaying where multiple people died. And the FBI wanted nothing to do with that case when they found the connection to Zanayev. It's absolutely crazy the way that the FBI in Boston and nationwide just withholds information from other law enforcement agencies. Why didn't they go to the Waltham police and say, we think we know who did this. It's the Zanayev brothers, or at least the older Zanayev in that case. The FBI is simply too willing, absolutely too willing to work with people who are murderers or are potential murderers, right? Look at H. Paul Rico and Joe Barbosa. Look at John Conley and Stevie Flemmy, Whitey Bulger. And it continues right up until recent times, guys. The Rossetti case, the Mark Rossetti case. I'm going to fill you in a little bit on that if you haven't been following it. He was an informant for the FBI, much like Whitey Bulger, for 20 years. And there was rumors all over the place. The state police were chasing him for homicides, for selling heroin. And besides murder, right, he basically had the Whitey Bulger deal. Whitey Bulger had the deal is you can earn as a criminal, just don't commit murder. Wink, wink. This tale of the FBI in Boston and nationally, it's just rancid. And they're accountable to no one. They simply don't care. They give you the finger. I was watching an interview by Ted Cruz, who was interviewing a FBI supervisory agent, and he asked her, and this was in relation to the January riot where people went into the Capitol, if a certain person caught on tape repeatedly pleading and telling people to go inside the Capitol. And people were calling that guy out on film saying, this is an FBI informant. Ted Cruz asked her directly, is this person an FBI asset or informant? And she wouldn't answer him. That should be concerning to everybody, guys. I'm sorry. In doing all this reading and living in Boston during this wild time with the FBI, it leads me to two questions, right? Can the FBI be trusted? That's number one. And number two, should the FBI continue? And on the second question, guys, I'm supremely torn because I do believe they're the premier law enforcement agency in the country. They are terrific investigators, forensics, interviewing, all their technology. The rest of the police departments in the United States need their assistance. And the United States needs the FBI. But come on, man. What the hell is going on here? So I'm torn on that. Should there be some reorganization? You know, they promised 
They had promised the American people after the Whitey Bulger episode that they'd change how they handle informants, and they haven't. They lie right to your face. And then if you complain about it, you're anti-law enforcement. So I don't know. I'm vexed on that one. And on the first question, can the FBI be trusted? The answer has to be no at this point, right? It just simply has to be no. Ask the Mass State Police if they trust the FBI. And don't ask them on camera. Ask the real people in the trenches, you know, do you trust the FBI? I think the answer would be a resounding no. I'm going to put in the show notes a clip from Fox 25 that features two retired, high-ranking state police troopers. They were investigating Mark Rossetti, and they knew he was a killer. They knew he was a gangster, a heroin dealer. Watch that clip. I'll put it in the show notes and tell me, would you trust the FBI? Because they lie right to your face. They asked them straight up, is Mark Rossetti a confidential informant for the FBI? And they lie right to their goddamn face. How do you work like that? The reason that the Mass State Police were asking the question is because they had bugged Rossetti's phone and they had recorded over 40 phone calls to his FBI handler and it became readily apparent that this guy was a confidential top echelon informant for the FBI. And it appears that the FBI wanted Rossetti to continue as an informant at all costs, even if he was killing people, guys. Man, I'll get into that, but I know this has been a long open, but this case gets to me. It comes right down to the heart of this country. Can you trust the FBI? And as it stands now, I believe the answer to that question is no. All right, guys, this is our fourth and final episode on the FBI. I left you with the Joe Barbosa, H. Paul Rico days. I'm going to take you up from there to the Whitey Bulger, Stevie Flemmy, John Conley saga. I'm going to encapsulate that. It'll be a reduced version because I want to get into the Mark Rossetti case and a little bit of the national FBI as it stands today. And that's how it's going to roll. So I think I misinformed you. I had stated that H. Paul Rico was likely the most corrupt agent in FBI history. But I'm just going through my research for John Conley. I believe he was subplanted by John Conley, but maybe they're running neck and neck. Send me an email at barry at bostonconfidential.net and let me know who you think or whom you think is more corrupt, John Conley or H. Paul Rico. But let's get into the story of John Conley. John Conley was born in 1940, and he lived on O'Callaghan Way in Old Harbor Village, South Boston, Massachusetts. And this is a public housing project, but this was constructed right after the end of World War II for returning veterans. And this was actually a pretty decent place because I know you're thinking public housing development and all that, it doesn't have great connotations. But at that time, this place was brand new and it catered to returning veterans, working stiffs, you know the whole deal. The Bulger family also lived on O'Callaghan Way in the Old Harbor development. 
Another person who actually lived on O'Callaghan Way was my mother. My mother actually lived there right next to the Bulgers and the Conleys. So a little bit of a coincidence. And he'd follow me up the hill, or follow my family up the hill, towards Dorchester Heights in a few years, but I'll get to that. So the Conleys were a working-class family. I believe he had at least one brother, a younger brother. But he made friends with the Bulgers, specifically Bill Bulger. That's Whitey Bulger's little brother. And Bill was always a studious guy. He's very intelligent. And they kind of bonded John Conley and William Bulger. And William Bulger went on to be a state representative. And I'm sorry I didn't mention this in any of the other podcasts on this subject, but Bill Bulger was a highly regarded state representative who went on to be the Senate president in Massachusetts for many years. He was actually the most powerful politician for, I don't know, over a decade in Massachusetts. You didn't screw with Billy Bulger. And he took care of his friends. He took care of John Conley. John Conley kind of followed the educational pursuits of Bill Bulger. He went on to Boston College and then went to Suffolk Law School. So whatever you may think of John Conley, he was no dummy. He was a sharp tack. And he took a job, I believe, after law school or during law school as a teacher. He was kind of floating the idea around of what to do with the rest of his life. And Bill Bulger at the time put him in contact with an FBI agent by the name of Dennis Condon and a Boston police officer by the name of Walsh, who was friendly with Bill Bulger as well. So they take credit for recruiting him into law enforcement, I guess. And the Speaker of the House in Congress was also a South Bostonian who had lived at the Old Harbor Development by the name of McCormick, I believe. McCormick writes a letter to J. Edgar Hoover recommending John Conley to the FBI. And this is how it works in South Boston, right? You think you're taking an exam and that's the only way you're going to get on a job? Eh, probably not. But that's a story for another time. So John Conley becomes an FBI agent in 1968, and they station him immediately to the Baltimore area and I believe to Los Angeles for a short period after that. But everybody in this political group was kind of conspiring. I don't know if that's the right word, but they were looking to bring John Conley back home. And it is said that at one point he had observed some gangster. I believe it is Cadillac Frank Salemi. And I believe this is how the story goes, and I don't believe it, that John Conley sees Cadillac Frank Salemi on a train in New York City or something and puts the handcuffs on him because he was wanted at the time. It just stinks to high heaven with me, that story, okay? But regardless, the FBI brass bring him back to Boston. He makes that mafia pinch, makes him look like a shop tack, and now they can do something for him. And that something for him was bringing him back to Boston. And before I go further, there is this story that John Conley, as a young kid, was kind of in a jam. The story to me is kind of fantastical. Reeks of horseshit, but this is the story. 
that John Conley, at one point in the old harbor village, was surrounded by some older kids, and they were having some street beef over a ball, a football, basketball, whatever it may be, and it was getting ready to come to fisticuffs. Whitey Bulger comes out of nowhere and shoes the older kids away. John Conley saved, and that's the story. Come on, will you? But all right, so that's how it goes. And then John Conley goes off to the FBI and comes back to Boston, right? So at that point, he is reunited with Dennis Condon. Dennis Condon, in the years prior, had approached Jim Whitey Bulger and asked him to become an informant, at least made the approach and all this BS. And he was completely rebuffed at that point. So John Conley starts working his angle the Southie Brotherhood, South Boston Brotherhood, and all that, okay? So eventually, both Bulger and Flemmy agreed to become informants. And Bulger had kind of framed it in this way that he would be not an informant, but something less than that. You know how gangsters are. They don't want to be rats, although they are. What Whitey didn't know was Flemmy was already a multi, multi-year informant for the FBI. And I don't know if Bulger was, but at that point, John Conley becomes the handler for both Stevie Flemmy and Whitey Bulger. So pretty quickly, John Conley falls under the spell, specifically of Whitey Bulger, who was kind of a Machiavellian character and under the spell of Winter Hill in general. In 1980, John Conley and his first wife moved to Dorchester Heights. He lived in the 50 block of Dorchester Heights, Thomas Park, and I lived in the 20 block. So it's a big circle if you're not familiar with the area. So he lived on one side of the park and I lived on the other. And me and my family would see him with some degree of frequency walking up the park and all that. And at that time, you know, he was known as a South Boston success story. Nobody knew what he was actually doing. But that's what I meant. I said his family was following mine, first from Old Harbor Village, then to Dorchester Heights, Thomas Park. So I guess that's our connection. That's my brush with fame, guys. But at a certain point, the exchange of information wasn't just from Bulger and Flemmy to the FBI. It went back and forth. And pretty soon, John Conley literally says to the Winter Hill gang, I guess I'm one to the gang, because he had started taking money. And once you start taking money, it's all over for you with these guys. But... John Conley really seemed to enjoy it because he sold his condo on Dorchester Heights and moved to what amounts to a mansion in Linfield. And by this time, he was divorced. And his second marriage, I believe, was to another federal employee. I think she worked in the federal building or within the FBI. I'm not sure if she was some type of receptionist or something like that, but I'm not entirely sure. But her brother was Arthur Gianelli. And he was a mobster. So it's just so funny. This Gianella was actually in with the crew with John Martirano. So this guy Gianella 
helps them build this house in Linfield. They're like mansion side by side, one for him and one for his brother-in-law, the FBI agent. Welcome to Boston. But I'm going to skip around a little here. And again, I'm going to give you a condensed version of John Conley, because I think everybody, at least in the metropolitan Boston area, knows the story of John Conley's corruption. But later would come out that John Conley had given information that facilitated three murders. And those murders were, in 1976, the murder of Richard Castucci, a local bookie. I don't know why he got off. Brian Halloran, I had already mentioned that. That was, I think, in 82. April 82 for Brian Halloran. Whitey Bulger shot him with a machine gun in the parking lot of a bar. And then he gave information on John Callahan that set him up for murder in 1982. And Callahan, if you remember, was the president of that world highlight. First, they get rid of Roger Wheeler, who discovered that the Winter Hill gang was skimming. And H. Paul Rico calls John Conley. John Conley calls Whitey. Whitey calls John Martirano. And... John Callahan is no more. Roger Wheeler is no more. So that's three murders that this guy gave information on. He wasn't getting information on that. Again, like John Conley said, he was part of the gang. But John Conley started developing a habit for this easy money, and his style reflected it. He wore these slick suits, big rings, just like his friends, John Monterano and all those gangsters. Actually, the Boston police had come to calling John Conley, John Cannoli, because he was mimicking the gangsters in the North End in Winter Hill in both their style of dressing and how he spoke. So he was completely consumed by this. And at a certain point, Flemmy had to cut his pay because in 1980, the salary for an FBI agent in Boston was $45,000. And John Conley was spending like a drunken sailor. No offense to drunken sailors either. But he buys the mansion in Linfield. 1980, I think he bought a 27-foot boat. He bought some land in Chatham down in Cape Cod, one of the most beautiful and expensive towns on the Cape. And then... He built a house on that land in Chatham. If the FBI was ever looking at anybody, if the FBI ever noticed, nobody ever said anything. They certainly didn't investigate him. And there were about 45 to 50 agents in that office, and nobody ever said boo about John Conley. So don't give me that bullshit about just a few bad apples. They all knew. So the mob's relationship with John Conley had blossomed almost from the beginning. But 1981, John Conley and the rest of the Boston FBI made a major arrest, and that was the arrest of Jerry Angiulo and all of his brothers, henchmen. Jerry Angiulo was the capo of the North End. He's very high-ranking, maybe higher than that. They reported to... Providence, but for Boston, Jerry and Julo was the boss of the mob in the North End. So what happened was 
The FBI was working under this mandate to get the Italian mob, and John Conley was doing his best. And he had Stevie Flemmy and Whitey Bulger go into the office in the North End on Prince Street. I believe it was 98 Prince Street, if my memory serves. And he supposedly drew, Bulger and Flemmy drew a diagram for FBI agents about how to get into this building and all this. And they ended up bugging Angelo's headquarters. And as you can imagine, I don't want to stereotype, Italians love to talk. And boy, did they talk. They talked about murders. They talked about extortion. They talked about everything. So the FBI gets the bug in there. And John Conley says, yeah, this is all due to my confidential informant work with Flemmy and Bulger. See how much they're giving us? So now John Conley was basically untouchable in the FBI office. And that was 81. A few years later, they all go down. All the Italians and the Angelo crew go down. And they go away for a hell of a long time. So they did bring down the Italian mob. But that brings up Winter Hill. They were basically the only organized crime faction in the city. They still treated the mafia with respect and all this. But now it was Winter Hill's turn, you know, and they had the FBI in their pocket. And if you ever see any photographs of the arrest of Jerry Angulo, there is John Conley in the photograph pointing to a nearby police vehicle where they were going to take him. And there's nothing the FBI likes more than good press. And John Conley was giving it to them. So as the 80s progressed, local law enforcement agencies, the Massachusetts State Police, the DEA, the Boston Police to an extent, were trying to put Whitey Bulger and Stevie Flemmy out of business. And time and time again, the state police would plant a wire. At one point, they found Whitey Bulger's new headquarters on Lancaster Street, just outside of the North End in proximity to the old Boston Garden, if you know that area. So Whitey had taken over a garage on Lancaster Street, and an eagle-eyed state trooper had seen some mafioso, Stevie Fleming, and all these coming and going from this garage. So they watch it for a while, they apply for a wiretap, and they get it. And they had been watching these people, they'd come in there and hold court with Whitey Bulger, Stevie Flemmy, John Monterano. It was a new meeting place, and it was pretty popular with this crew. And they were watching, and so they put a bug in there. And now all of a sudden, right, after they get the wiretap, they hear that, Whitey Bulger is telling Stevie Flemmy inside the office, hey, you know what a great police organization the Mass State Police are? I can't believe what good guys they are, you know, really laying it on thick. What they were doing, and they were telling the Mass State Police, we know you have a bug in here. We're not going to say anything further criminal-wise, right? And so they have to take the bug out and end the investigation. And now they all start looking around. We've got a rat. So somebody told Whitey Bulger that he was bugged. Guess who it was? It was John Conley. Time and time again. At one point, the DEA had like a massive shipment of marijuana in South Boston's waterfront. And they were about ready to make an arrest. 
And again, just after this becomes not public, but semi-public knowledge within at least the police world, it all goes to hell. So again, now the DEA is looking around. Now we've got a rat. They didn't know the rat wasn't on the state police or the DEA who was in the FBI, who was protecting Bulger and Flemmy at all costs. So at that point, it becomes kind of common knowledge that Whitey Bulger is an informant for the FBI. There were actually articles about it in the Boston Globe that every time anybody got close to Whitey Bulger, boom, the case goes up in smoke. So you don't get that for no good reason. He's giving information on not only his rivals in the Italian mafia, but in Winter Hill itself. At a certain point, he set up Pat Knee, one of the guys in Winter Hill. And I think Whitey Bulger saw Pat Knee as competition, basically, because Pat Knee was a tough, tough bastard, right? And he was running guns. Pat Knee was part of an operation to run guns to the IRA. And he was aboard a shipping trawler, a ship that left from Boston Harbor loaded with guns and explosives for the IRA. And Whitey rats him out, obviously, to the FBI. And the FBI alert the Irish authorities. So they're all arrested, you know, in Irish waters. So there goes the competition from Pat Knee, thanks to the FBI. So this goes on and on. And it goes all the way up to 1990 when John Conley retires from the FBI. I think they have kind of a mandatory retirement age, which is kind of young because a lot of those guys end up going on to different jobs afterwards. But regardless, Conley leaves the FBI in 1990 and becomes head of security for Boston Edison. And by this time, the rumors about Bulger being an FBI informant are almost common knowledge all over the place. It is definitely known within law enforcement. And they suspected the FBI. And guess what? Just like today, they don't give a shit what you think. They just continue on. And in 1994, indictments come down for Flemmy Bulger, and all those guys in Winter Hill. And part of their deal with John Conley is, at one point, Whitey Bulger was asked, what are you going to get from John Conley? And his reply was, head start. And that's exactly what Whitey Bulger got from John Conley, was a head start. He gets a hold of Kevin Weeks, and Kevin Weeks tells Jim Bulger and later Steve Flemmy that indictments are coming down, it's bad. You better hit the road. And they say Whitey Bulger had always kept, you know, a to-go bag ready to march out the door at a moment's notice. That's exactly what he did. And I think he was gone for 16 years. Flemmy was not so lucky. He did get the information, but was in the middle of rehabbing an investment property, I believe on Marlboro Street or Calm Ave. And it was a lot of money he had invested in this house, and he was reluctant to hit the bricks. So he gets pinched along with everybody else, and Whitey's the only guy smart enough to hit the road. So in Massachusetts at that time, in his 1994, the indictments come down. If there was ever 
any doubt in anyone's mind that Whitey Bulger had some sources in law enforcement that told him about this indictment. They went up in smoke, right? So it was obvious to everybody that Whitey had become an informant. And the FBI was not only getting information, it was giving it. So it comes out in 1998 during Stevie Flemmy's trial that John Connolly is basically a member of Winter Hill. And the whole town, it just erupts, right? Everybody kind of knew it, but Stevie Flemmy names him as a corrupt FBI agent. And he had stated that he had given him, I don't know, 250000 in cash over the years. Other people had given him more. And it was just one thing after another. And Flemmy attributed those three murders of Castucci, Halloran, and Callahan directly to John Conley. John Conley gave information on those. And pretty soon the jig was up. You know, everybody knew what was going on in Boston. The first indictments for John Conley came down in 1999, nine years after he had retired from the FBI. And those indictments, the first one, were federal. And that came from Flemmy's testimony. And Conley was indicted for falsifying FBI reports, accepting bribes, covering up crimes by his informants. In the year 2000, Conley was charged with additional offenses, mostly related to racketeering and the homicide of Roger Wheeler down in Florida. And he goes to trial and is convicted on all counts. And it's just kind of sad about John Conley, right? It could have went a whole different direction for that guy, but he was greedy. And he was indicted in Florida on the Wheeler beef for charges of second-degree homicide. And that was a state-level case down in Florida. So he ends up getting about 40 years in federal time, 10 years on the Florida time. So he goes away to prison. But in 2011, Whitey Bulger was recaptured, and his trial goes on, and it just lays more on the deck of John Conley. And the amount of corruption that came from the Flemmy and Bulger trials related to the FBI it was just incredible. There was some state police corruption. I believe Stevie Flemmy had some sources in the intelligence unit and the Massachusetts State Police. They ended up going to prison. And the funny part about this whole thing was John Conley thought these guys were going to stand up for him. He thought that Flemmy wasn't going to say anything to try to get out of his prison sentence. He seems to forget that these are gangsters. They were all using each other all these years. Bulger then threw him under the bus as well. You know, it's not a mystery. Flemmy testifies against Conley, Martirano, Kevin Weeks. They all gave him money. They all gave him information. And it was a cesspool of FBI corruption. So in April 2020, Conley was released from prison on medical grounds. And there was some fears that he could contract COVID-19 in prison. But I think he already had at least one form of cancer. It may have been more. So he's been released now and he's back home with his wife and family. 
a lot of victims of Winter Hill didn't get that. Brian Halloran didn't get to do that. Mark Donahue, who was just giving that guy a ride home and was machine gunned by Whitey Bulger, didn't get that opportunity. But John Conley did. He's still alive. I guess he's sick, but he's home with family. And he'll slip from this world pretty comfortably. Unlike, say, I don't know, Deborah Hussey, who Whitey Bulger strangled personally to death on the orders of Stephen Fleming, and the FBI knew about it. Much better than that. Much better than Deborah Hussey's death, right? John Conley's boss, John Morris, was also indicted in this. It came out both through Bulger and Fleming that John Morris had been fully corrupted. He had been purchased for a total of $7,000. And it was a case of wine with $1,000 in cash in it that John Conley brought to John Morris. And this is from John Morris, from nobody else. He tried to make amends, Morris, on this, but he's such a dolt in all of it. It's hard to believe, actually. They had dinner parties together, Winter Hill and the FBI, John Morris and John Conley, and they're sharing a bottle of wine. Imagine that. So basically, John Morris had been purchased by the Winter Hill gang for a very small amount of money. At one point, Morris wanted two plane tickets, one for him and one for his mistress, and Winter Hill gladly paid that. It was well worth that money. And you want to know what John Morris's punishment was? Nothing. They just wanted his testimony. And you know where he went after the FBI in Boston? This disgrace. He went to teach at the FBI Academy. That's how serious the FBI is about reforming their informant handling protocols, right? Hey, you did such a shitty job up in Boston and you're corrupt as the day is long. Huh. Where can we put you? Oh, yeah. Why don't you go teach recruits at the academy? Holy cow. All right, guys. I know I had said I was going to bring you up through the Mark Rossetti case and the current state of the FBI, but I think we're at about 40-some-odd minutes in terms of this podcast. I'm going to have to put that together for another part. There's just so many moving parts to this story. We've got four episodes in on this, and I still have things to tell you. I'm not going to go to an episode five on this. I'm going to give you a little bit of a break. We're going to get back to some more usual stuff for Boston Confidential, but I really enjoyed this. And if you like this longer format podcast, let me know at Barry at BostonConfidential.net. And I really enjoy doing them because you can get into so much more when I really don't have to worry about the time. But there is so much information in this specific case, guys. I kind of feel like I let you down, but I'll definitely cover that Mark Rossetti thing in the near future. And what's going on in the FBI today, I don't know. Is that a Boston story? Let me know on my email. But I think that's all I have for you right now. I'm going to get on to the next one, and I'll see you on the flip side. 